Hey there! If you like true crime stories and you love being in the great outdoors, you have come to the right place. I'm Tara, your host. Welcome to Crime Off the Grid. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Crime Off the Grid podcast. Today, my guest host is Ranger Patty Murphy. Hi, Patty. Hey, Tara. <laughs> Patty has worked for the National Park Service as a law enforcement ranger spanning over 30 years, 31 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, during all that time, she was also an EMT. She did a lot with victim assistance as well. So you started out where? Delaware Water Gap? Is that Delaware National? Delaware Water Gap, yep. 1984. Na- national. Recreation Recre- area. Okay, recreation area. And then uh, you, you spent the rest of your career in Yellowstone, the Mother Park. The Mother Park, that's right. Yeah, which is where I know you. Uh, from. Well, actually, you and I met in uh, when I was in Seasonal uh, Law Enforcement Training Academy, and you were, you were actually an instructor there, right? Or you, weren't you an yes. instructor there? I yeah, was I think, when I was in grad school and then three uh, years yeah. after that. Mm-hmm. I think you taught me how to handcuff people at the time. <laughs> so <laughs> I think, I don't know if that was, I think that's what your role was in, but that was a long time ago. Yes, it but, was. But uh, fun facts, Patty and I worked so long together that <laughs> we knew exactly what the other one was going to do literally on any incident that we were on. So I knew so what, I knew what you were thinking and yeah. you knew what I was thinking. That is correct. Even to the point of what ticket I was going to write when there were more when there was more than one option. Yeah, or or making an arrest, or if uh-huh. we were on an EMS call and you and I both were swimming in projectile vomit in the back of the ambulance. <laughs> yeah, uh, we sneaking through the woods. I don't think we even needed to use symbols. We just knew what the other one, which way the other one was going, or or just any old contact, but. That was fun. It's hard to find that kind of partnership these days to work with somebody that knows you so well and you know them so well. That is true. We had some great times. I wouldn't give anything for my time as a ranger. No. Mm -mm. Well, uh, so it's it's sweater weather here. I don't know if it's sweater weather there. (laughs) No, it is still blooming hot here in Mm. Tennessee. Oh. Well, if, if anybody out there's got sweater weather going on, and I, I, hopefully people are are still getting outdoors, and this is my very favorite time of year, uh, which is short because where I live, it's it's eight months of winter, um, one month of spring, which is really just watching the snow slowly melt away, <laughs> and two months of summer, and maybe a month of fall. I don't I don't know what that added up to. Somebody can do the math. I don't do math. <laughs> Um, if that if that's a full year or not, I don't know. But you probably could do that too. But change substitute summer for winter, maybe. Oh yeah, we. Have, I mean, it's still hot, and the eighty eight I think was today. And at least it's not as humid here now. And fall and spring are my favorite times here too in Tennessee. Yeah. So yeah, leaves changing, yeah. football season mm-hmm. for me. So get out there while you can, and don't let our story today make you hesitate because it might um we're going to be talking about hiking trails today specifically the appalachian trail and our case that we're going to talk about is really a tragic tragic incident from the spring of 2019 
Well, the Appalachian Trail, actually the Appalachian Trail ran through Delaware Water Gap when I was a ranger there. Oh, cool. Oh, well, yeah. I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. It did a little part of it, and it's gorgeous hikes. Um, and it is 2,198.4 miles long as of wow. 2023. So long as of 2023. Do they keep adding to it? I think it changes um, oh. depending on foot traffic, when they have to do variations, depending on oh, yeah, washouts yeah, yeah. and things like mm -hmm. that. So, mm -hmm. But it's the longest hiking only footpath in the world. Oh. Yeah. And it. Wow. Uh, about 464,500 feet of gain loss in elevation throughout that. Hmm. Wow. For, yeah. I mean, it traverses 14 states from Georgia to Maine. Um, over 3 million visitors a year uh, actually hike. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, more than 3,000 try to do the whole thing which they call through hikers mm -hmm. and um they try to do it in the single year where they start in the spring early on and then they end up in the fall and oh. uh, out of those that attempted though um not as many are successful obviously right um, yeah so it was actually completed in 1937 and it is a unit of the National Park Service, which is, you know, you, it's kind of the weird jurisdiction thing. Because mm -hmm. even in Delaware Water Gap, we had proprietary and concurrent jurisdiction. So it's weird. Yeah. Um, but there's more than 253 sided shelters along the trail. Um, how many? How many? 250. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Three are they, are they um, separated by so many miles? They try to have one for so many miles or did it say? It didn't say, so I'm not, I don't know about that. Yeah, that's a lot. But yeah, about 550 miles are in Virginia, which is the home of most of the miles, and West Virginia, which is a smaller state, but it's the least with about four miles. So, hmm. yeah. and then Maryland uh, and West Virginia are the easiest to hike. And New Hampshire and Maine <laughs> are the hardest. <laughs> oh, and, wow. Yeah, and it passes through six national park units, eight national forest service areas, two wildlife refuges. So it has an incredible diversity in plant and animals. So that's cool. You know, when you're hiking, yeah. you can see all the flora, yeah. the flora and fauna. <laughs> and yeah. one in four that attempt the through hike succeed. So only one in four. Well, that's actually, I think, not bad. Uh, Considering how thought, long it is. Yeah, I'd have thought maybe like 10%, maybe. That's like, I don't do math. <laughs> one in 10. <laughs> well, okay, there's four quarters in a dollar. So okay, carry the one. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so, you know, it was nice to kind of look up and get all that info about it because I didn't know all those little tidbits of facts. So if you yeah. want to take a really long hike and you have a lot of time off, <laughs> there you go. Since we're talking today about crime off the grid, we're going to first talk about crime in general on the Appalachian Trail, which the, the crime rate is actually relatively low, but you know where you have people, you have crime. And um, one source I found said there's about one assault per year and one, they referred to it as rape uh, or sexual assault, I guess, every three years on average and assaults in general are rare, but 
you know, these are reported assaults, and I don't know if I believe these stats actually, but I'm sure there are more, particularly particularly sexual assaults that right. just go unreported. But that's in line with everywhere in the world. Well, interestingly, according to a publication called The Trek, T-R-E-K, there's an article by some woman named Julia Sheehan from January 25th of 2019, uh, which is specific to the Appalachian Trail here. She says, hikers were asked whether they had an experience that made them feel unsafe. And then they were asked which type of experience made them feel most unsafe and were given six options to choose from. One was hitchhiking. A strange person in town, a strange person on the trail, trail conditions, wildlife encounter, or other. Then of those who stated that they did feel unsafe, 40% of those were involving a strange person, which I'd fall into that category. (laughs) And and of those encounters, not all took place on the trail. So it was a combination of trail, towns, and hitchhiking. Hello. I've hitchhiked once in my life, and it was on the Okoe River, which was from uh, at the takeout from the Okoe River, which is in East Tennessee, White Water River. And I wanted to get a ride back to the put-in so I could get our vehicle and come back and get our boats. Um, and I'm like, somebody picked me up right away. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I hope I'm don't get murdered. I mean, everybody <laughs> hitchhikes on that road. You know, that's right. You know, everybody on that road is a river user. <laughs> but, you know, hey, these days, what a good place. I'm going to troll the, troll that road for mm-hmm. river users, you know. Mm-hmm. Here are the banjos. Um, Right. <laughs> hey, that's a real thing. Um, I know. <laughs> well, on the National Park Service Appalachian National Scenic Trail website, they have a section where you can read about safety. And then they had this big, bold paragraph, be wary of people who make you uneasy. And then they, this is great advice. They said, avoid or get away quickly from people who act suspicious, hostile, or intoxicated or exhibit aggressive curiosity or any other behaviors that just don't feel right, even if you can't explain why. Trust your instincts, even when someone claims to be an authority figure or, quote, trail angel. Don't worry about being judgmental or hurting someone's feelings. Your safety may depend on it. Don't stay in a shelter or engage in conversation with anyone who makes you feel uncomfortable. Criminals are often even engaging polite conversation with someone who is overly aggressive may signal to them that you are an easy target. Don't reveal your itinerary. Make notes of as many details about the person as you can and report them to law enforcement or the Appalachian Trail ATC. What's that stand for? Appalachian Trail, not commission. Conservancy. Conservancy. Yeah, conservancy. Yeah, it is. That's correct. (laughs) Okay. Right. Okay. Oh my gosh. I've never seen anything like that come out of a National Park Service website. And I'm going to bet you that was put in there after this incident that we're going to talk about. Mm. Could be. Could be. And you know, there's a great book when I taught self-defense stuff around here. There's a great book by Gavin DeBecker. I don't even know if it's still published, but it's called The Gift of Fear. And he talks about listening to your intuitive voice about, you know, don't get on the elevator if something doesn't feel right. So, yes, that's great advice. Yeah, we're the only species who doesn't trust our instincts because we're too worried about being polite. Mm -hmm. Especially in the South. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's right. Bless her hearts. They uh -huh, don't want to hurt anybody's exactly. feelings. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, you know, only what I could gather, there's only been about 12 murders uh, on the Appalachian Trail since the oh. beginning of it. And the first recorded one was in 1974. Oh. Um, yeah. I didn't realize and, there were 12. That's more than I thought. Yeah, so um, in 74, a guy named Ralph Fox murdered Joel Polson from South Carolina and kidnapped his female companion mm. at a shelter along the trail. Yep, shelter. <clears throat> yeah, and then in 75, another guy was murdered um, and was killed with a hatchet, uh, reportedly <gasps> for her backpack that he coveted. And then mm. eighty, yeah, eighty-one. This one was horrible. Um, the, and I don't need to say the names of these people, but right. um, a guy and his um, female friend were found dead in their sleeping bags. And mm. uh, yeah, he was shot three times. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, she was stabbed repeatedly with a long nail. And so with and a nail. A long nail, they said. Oh. So, and then that's the guy who was sentenced, served 15 of his 30 years, and then went back and shot two fishermen. Oh, uh, yes. I know that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then in 88, a young man fired his rifle eight times at two women, and he struck both of them with several shots, and one of them died as a result mm. of it. Mm. And then in one of the uh, 1990, um, uh, the two through hikers were murdered at another shelter outside of Pennsylvania. And the male was shot and killed and the female was raped and tortured and killed. Mm. Yeah. And then in 96, two females were found in Shenandoah um, with incisions to their necks Oh, and, yeah, yeah. that one's never been solved, today. right? That one's right. never been solved, yeah. And then in 2001, a Canadian woman was murdered in the White Mountains in New Hampshire, and she was stabbed to death um, at a trailhead. Hmm. Mm. And 2008, um, that was when the two fishermen were shot from the other guy that was already served 15 years. Right, right. And in 2011, a male hiker from Indiana died on the trail, um, and he died from asphyxiation uh, by suffocation. And that one is unsolved. This one is unsolved. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah, and then 2015, this is interesting, 2015, they captured a guy who had been hiding on the Appalachian Trail, and he had been on the run for six years. And he uh, allegedly embezzled millions from Pepsi, his employer, um, though not investigated for murder, murdering somebody on the trail. Authorities are investigating him for the murder of his wife, who was killed in mm. a house fire. Oh. And then 2019, the case that we're going to talk about. So those are the murders that I could find. Well, that's about. more than I knew. Yeah, I didn't know there were that many. We and we're gonna we're gonna talk about a couple of those incidents in another episode, I think. But wow, hmm. yeah. Well, hey, just uh, FYI, we're gonna be talking about some hard to hear violent details in uh, when discussing this case. 
So I wanted to give everybody that warning before we actually get started. So I, I'm guessing um, if that's not your thing, you, you probably wouldn't be here listening today anyway. But I, I did want to tell you, we, we are going to bring up some of the violent details. And our story begins on the Appalachian Trail in Tennessee. And a man who has the trail name of Sovereign, real name James Lewis Jordan, had been known as a nuisance on the trail for several months. And in mid-April of 2019, he'd been making threats to several hikers at a particular shelter in Tennessee. And when the hikers arrived at a hostel uh, a day or so later, I think it was close to town or in town, whatever town it was, they reported the incident to Sheriff Mike Hensley of Unicoi County, Tennessee, who interviewed them uh, late that night. And he says, quote, we knew there was trouble down here with this boy. I don't mean to make like what was going on. But anyway, I kind of can't help it sometimes when there's quotes. I just sort of take on that persona. Mm-hmm. That's okay. <laughs> uh, down here with this boy, end quote, who, but the boy was sovereign, who was 30 years old, by the way. And Sheriff Hensley says, what really got my attention was that one of the hikers said he told them it's going to be a bad day for hikers on the trail. And so after hearing that, the sheriff says he immediately deployed deputies, but they were not able to locate Jordan. And it had been reported that Jordan ran hikers out of shelters with a shovel and brandished a knife and machete. And then that's when he stated it was going to be a bad day for hikers. Dang. This guy was all over the place, and he seemed to be staying within like 150-mile section of the trail, harassing hikers in Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia. That seemed to be where he kind of stayed, and I Mm -hmm. I guess he went back and forth. I'm sure he did some hitchhiking in between there. I I don't know. He had to come in for supplies, but um, anyway, so some of the other complaints from hikers were that he would hiss like a cat at people. And pour alcohol on campfires because he did seem to be kind of obsessed with lighting things and people on fire. So Jordan was eventually arrested after an altercation with hikers on the Tennessee, North Carolina border. And police found that he was carrying a knife with a 20 inch blade. And I measured out 20 inches. (laughs) I'm like, that is a big ASS Mm -hmm. knife. Big knife. He reportedly pled guilty to several charges and was just sentenced to a fine and then released. Mm-hmm. So he pled to I did, criminal impersonation. And I'm like, okay, I, he, he had a fake ID. So I don't know if that was some type of like fake credentials. I don't know what the criminal impersonation was um, or just, just fake ID. But he also had possession of marijuana and he was charged with public intoxication. But uh, they took that huge knife and held it in evidence, and it's never been returned back to him. So, But none of the hikers uh, on the trail were willing or maybe just couldn't make themselves available to testify. So that's why he was allowed to be released so quickly. But actually, none, nothing he was charged with was going to get him any jail time. You know, I read that, uh, especially through hikers, were on a schedule. Yeah. They were not willing to take the time to hang around and wait to testify. Yeah. I, well, that makes sense. But I wonder if if any of them could have testified, would he have had other charges like assault or attempted assault with a deadly weapon or something like that? But anyway. I would hope so. But yeah. So, but the, back to this trail name business. Mm-hmm. I, I can't believe I didn't realize people adopted trail names. I, I've been hiking for 
years. And I never was a through hiker anywhere. I've hiked all over the Rocky Mountain West. You know, I never ran into anybody that said, oh, what's your trail name? Uh, I've hiked little day sections of the Appalachian Trail. That's it. And the Continental Divide Trail goes through Yellowstone, but I never would have thought to ask anyone if I came in contact with someone, what was their trail name? Like if I ran into them, it was for work and I would be more interested in what their real ID was. (laughs) But yeah, but apparently through hikers, you know, kind of use it as an alias on trail. I've been doing it for a long time. And the first supposed Appalachian Trail through hiker, whose name was Earl Schaefer in 1948, um, had a trail name and he went by the crazy one. <laughs> oh, so wow. I, I'm sure but a lot of people could use that. You know. yeah. But it sounds like, you know, it's a way for through hikers to identify it, you know, who's who likes, you know, tr- person by the crazy one down the trail and people get to know who that is. And maybe it's a way, you know, to stay private. Cause I'm sure I wouldn't be telling people um, or certainly my, not my full name, but, it sounds like it's kind of a rite of passage or something to have that alias. Yeah, I was. Some people, aware of that you know. Yeah, isn't that funny? Like, yeah, I can't believe I didn't know that. But okay, yeah. so I'm gonna ask you, Patty, if you okay. <laughs> if you were to choose your own trail name, what would it be? And then I'm gonna give you one. But what would you choose if it was your uh, slowpoke for yourself? <laughs> Slow slowpoke. <laughs> Is that really what you would say? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a fast hiker. I never have. Okay, okay. Uh, Unless a unless a unless a cow elk is trying to get you. I've seen you go pretty fast. True, true. This is true. Well, okay. So I'm I'm going to give you a trail name, and I'm going to call you Black Cloud. (laughs) Because the days that you, yep, the days that you've been that you were working all hell broke loose and I feel like I was a white cloud but you were always a black cloud and I have a feeling that would carry you through the Appalachian Trail if you were yeah Mm -hmm. I should have said that because you know people used to tell me that (laughs) well there you go that's it's gonna it should stick with you probably all right well well, I have one for you okay okay Whoppity Whisperer oh Oh, come on. I wasn't much of a whisperer of a Wapiti, but go ahead. No. I mean, you know, we were chased by the elk when you were pregnant. <laughs> and we were chased by an elk more than once. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or, yeah. I, you know, whisperer or escape artist. I don't know. You know. <laughs> well, but I remember uh, anybody I, listening you jumping that, into a Jeep. It was a Jeep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. was I, I don't know if I was pregnant or if I had, had my kid at the time. I, I've also been rescued um by people driving by with a with a small child on my back and carrying dogs and yes yeah yeah so wapiti means elk if those those people listen Uh to (laughs) (laughs) well i i thought maybe my i would give myself uh call myself redneck spice uh, because <laughs> one year, yeah, we all gave ourselves, we all, well, I gave everybody else, and this is what I got to the Redneck Spice, but we all had Spice Girl names. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, all right. Well, okay. So now it's Friday, May 10th, 2019. Mm. This horrific incident takes place in the Mount Rogers National Recreation Area, which is in southwestern Virginia, 
near the border of Tennessee and North Carolina. So that whole tri-state area. And Mount Rogers is the highest point in the state of Virginia with a summit elevation of 5,729 feet. It's about the, yeah. high, the elevation of Denver. Um, yeah. Now, uh, Jordan is there and he approached a group of four hikers. These hikers were all solo hikers that had joined together as they were continuing on the trail. They'd all met or run into Jordan before and his dog named Felicia, which I feel like that's a something you would name your dog, Patty. Um, <laughs> that must have been an ex-girlfriend or something for him. It might, maybe it was. Um, so they'd met Jordan and his dog Felicia on the trail earlier. And then on that evening this, uh, in May, Jordan was acting disturbed. This is, quote, acting disturbed and unstable and was playing his guitar and singing, end quote. Mm-hmm. So later that night, those four who were setting up camp, uh, the four of them set up camp a few miles from where they first met him on another site in the Wythe, W-Y-T-H-E, Wythe county virginia jordan was doing his usual as we now know threatening the hikers in their shelters saying he was going to pour gasoline on their tents and burn them to death so those four hikers those four solo hikers that were had been going along together decided to get the heck out of there and relocate their camp well jordan then confronted them with a knife remember the police had confiscated his huge knife earlier so he would have had to somehow go purchase a new knife or if he just had extras and, and whether it was a machete, uh, there was a reported machete as well. But I tried to look up the word machete. Like, what is a machete? Right. Uh, and, and, you know, basically it has two meanings. It could be a really, really long bladed knife or it could be that uh, long curved, what my mind, what a machete was, you know, used in... Um, thick vegetation for the purpose of like in the cutting jungle. away. Yeah, like in the jungle. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, two of the hikers ran north on the trail to get away from him, and Jordan chases them down the trail with his knife. Oh my gosh. I cannot imagine. And they called 911 and it was 2.30 in the morning saying they were being chased by a man with a knife. So Jordan gives up the chase and goes back to the campsite area and so then he starts to harass and threaten the other two hikers, a man and a woman. And I mean, it must have been late at this time and they were all packing up and ready to go. And I don't know why these two did not go with the other two or if they just were slower or, or what the deal was. And surely they saw Jordan chasing them with a knife down the trail. But the man named Ronnie Sanchez Jr. verbally engages and argues back with Jordan and then Sanchez pulls out his phone and tries to call 911. I think he might have had a um, either a sat phone or like an in-reach uh, type of spot device or something. But anyway. Yeah, that's what I read. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but, but he can't complete his call before Jordan starts stabbing him in his upper body. And then the poor female hiker is standing there watching this in horror as he collapses to the ground. And can't, I, I can't even imagine. I don't think my brain could even comprehend what I was seeing, you know, uh, but so she has her backpack on because they were all packed up and it weighed over 30 pounds. So she starts to run down the trail with her pack and everything on and he starts chasing her and he's catching her. She turns around and holds up her arms to surrender, probably thinking maybe she could reason with him. Cause I mean, she yeah. was probably just couldn't, he was going to get her and he starts stabbing her. 
and he stabs her in the face, in her torso, her arms, and her legs. And then she falls to the ground and plays dead. And she had the presence of mind and also fitness conditioning, we'll talk about in a minute, after a violent attack to lay still and hold her breath. So he would think she was dead. So he apparently, yeah, leaves because he starts looking for his dog. I mean, I don't know. He's like, here, Felicia, wasn't that the serial killer's dog on Silence of the Lambs? They, Felicia no, wait, was that, on Silence of the Lambs somewhere. Yes. Or was that Precious? That serial killer's oh. dog was named, was named Precious, okay. I think. Anyway, that, close that, enough. Yeah. Sounds kind of close. But anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, after he goes away, she got up and ran down the trail. Like, I mean, that stabbed all over her body. And eventually comes up to some other campers who were probably just camping off the trail. And then they helped her hike six more miles to a trailhead. So then they call 911 to report the stabbings. And she was transported um, to a hospital in Bristol, Tennessee. I don't know how far that was from, from their spot. But all right. After Jordan stabbed both Sanchez and the woman, he then goes to some campers who were in their tent and hollered that he needed to borrow a flashlight. They gave him a flashlight without getting out of their tent. I think they barely zip, unzipped it and stuck a flashlight out. And I wonder if, I know, I mean, good for them. Cause who knows if he was waiting out there with a, with his big knife. And I so I don't know if he was needing the flashlight to look for his dog or if he needed it to find, maybe he dropped his, his stabbing knife somewhere, but. So now the police have received 911 calls from the two hikers and who fled and then the call uh, about the attack on the woman. And by the way, the woman's trail name was Took, T-U-Q-U-E. So I'll, we'll just refer to her as her trail name so to protect her identity, although it's, it's out there, you could find it. But um, a tactical team responds and begins hiking back to the crime scene and they're using pings from a nearby cell phone tower to find the approximate location of the first stabbing. They probably didn't have much information because, uh, I mean, the woman uh, took was on her way to the hospital. And so they probably couldn't get a whole lot of direction necessarily. But so they, anyway, they found him. And at 614 the next morning, the tactical team arrived at the campsite where they found San- Sanchez's body, who had died from his injuries. Also, a dog, which I assume was Jordan's dog just led them straight to Jordan, which was fortunate. And so the deputies found blood on Jordan's clothes and he was arrested basically without incident. Yeah. They did find his uh, knife close to the body of Sanchez. That's right. That's what I thought. Okay. But you know, it must not have, of course it didn't hit any arteries on the woman or she would never have survived. So no, Mm -mm. that was, that was a blessing that, you know, she didn't get hit in the artery with that. So Jordan, um, you know, this guy was raised in New England. His friends called him JJ. Um, they described him as being, you know, childish, searching, damaged, vulnerable to delusions. Mm-hmm. And they said when his paranoia flared, his pupils would dilate and he would slip into what close friends call the shimmer and you know oh. i've always heard and i know i have looked into the eyes of satan and law enforcement and you have too it's like the wind the eyes are the window to the soul right and um uh, they had seen that in him and so his whole life 
people knew he had mental illness, but he kept evading treatment. And he would sign himself in and out of hospitals. He would refuse meds. And the crimes that he committed weren't serious crimes. So he would basically do a crime, go to jail for a few days, and get released. So they never he never really got the help that he needed. And in his childhood, his, his dad died when he was six of an overdose. His mm-hmm. mother drank heavily. He was unsupervised. Um, they said adults would describe him as sweet and fragile, a budding guitar player who seemed in search of structure. So the poor kid. Yeah. I mean, you know, mental illness is not an excuse. No. But it's a reason. And it doesn't make it easier for family members who have someone killed by somebody with mental illness. But it gives a window into why. And so Jordan was allowed to be a feral child. And... He basically started drinking when the family moved uh, to Cape Cod. And so he started using marijuana. He would sell marijuana. Um, He didn't go to school regularly. We know about that. He was arrested when he was 13 or 14 for breaking into a car. And so he just really was a troubled person. Even his own brother said he was and is to this day insane. And just a terrible person. Was that a younger brother or uh, older brother? Uh, younger brother. Yeah, younger. And it okay. didn't give any information about him. So I have no idea, you know, about oh, the yeah. younger brother's life. He apparently didn't get into mm-hmm. trouble. They didn't mention it. And so Jordan just started getting more and more erratic. And he was selling drugs, marijuana, and one kind of very sick encounter was one of his friends he was with um, they were they walked down to a pond and there was a frog on the edge of the pond and jordan walks over scoops up the frog puts it on the ground and stomps it to death then takes out his pocket knife and tears the frog apart so you know that's not normal behavior And um, in the winter of 2011, just before his 22nd birthday in January, police in Vermont found him lying on the floor of this hotel room that he wouldn't check out of. And he had stolen a phone and some stuff and he wouldn't leave. So they finally got him and he said that there was a bunch of marijuana in his car. He just tells the police there's a bunch of marijuana in his car. So they arrest him for the pot in his car. But served a few days, and then he never even came back for his car. He just started going into the woods and kind of living off the grid. And um, and before he went off the grid totally, though, he went back to uh, Winoski, uh, and this woman who had taken him in earlier, he went back to her, and she and her husband realized how sick he was and took him to the hospital in Vermont, and then later he was transferred to an inpatient facility, but again, he signed himself out and disappeared, and he shows up again back in Cape Cod, rambling incoherently. He told his friends he'd been prescribed meds, and they made him feel like a zombie, so 
you know, that that's his story over and over again. He was arrested three times in just really quick succession. Um, and he was staggering down the road, mumbling incoherent. He attacked staff at the Cape Cod Hospital. He insisted they were trying to give him a lethal injection. Then he was walking naked down mm. the Cape Cod airfield. But this is interesting. So the judge ordered a mental evaluation of him. This is 2013. And he was found to be competent and released. But the recording, the audio of his session where he was uh, had his evaluation was destroyed. That was interesting. Oh, Wait, yeah. was he a minor? He wasn't a minor. No, he was, uh-uh. he, was tw- he was over 22. He was at least, you know, 23 years old. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then he was ordered to get counseling in Vermont, but then he went to Florida, goes all the way to Florida. And he was arrested in Florida for stealing chicken and a drink in a Publix. So, you know, the guy was just uh, living. Yeah. Terrible. Yeah, trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And then on this rainbow gathering, uh, so 2019, he goes in the okay. rainbow gathering in Florida, and that's when he, yeah, rainbow gathering, and so that's where his paranoia really worsened. And and his brother called him and said, "Your mom, the mom is dying. She has cancer. Come home." He never went home. He never saw his mother. So, mm. I mean, just it, just mm. a a pitiful situation that if someone had captured this child early on and found what he needed and gave him medical care, mental health care, you know, maybe none of this would have happened. A few years ago, I went to a crisis intervention training, which is training to help reduce the risk of serious injury or death during an emergency interaction between persons with mental illness and police officers, which I know that doesn't apply in this case. There's nothing that that wasn't something that was going to happen. But my point is this, um, on, on day one of the training, they dispensed our medications, which was actually just Skittles and M&Ms. Um, and they, they gave us instructions on when to take each med for the week. Like you take this with food, one without food, this in the morning, one before bedtime. Um, and we were supposed to remember each day of class to take our meds. And they even gave us a little pill organizer and they didn't remind us ever again. But, uh, by the end of the week, none of us had taken our medications as prescribed, uh, right. if we remembered at all. So I don't know how we can expect people with other mental challenges to take their medications and stay on them or ever get better, you know? Oh. Ronnie Sanchez, the victim in this incident, was um, a veteran. He had been three mm. tours in Iraq, wow. 16 years in the Army total. So he came back with some PTSD and combat-related injuries. His wife said he didn't like to be around people. He wouldn't even go to the grocery store during the day. He would wait until the night. And he found solace in the woods. And his trail name was Stronghold. Oh. Yeah. And he um, had clarity on the trail. So I think that, you know, here's a, you know, combat veteran that was unfortunately killed on a trail after being in all those horrible war kind of incidents. So I think that's just really really sad. 
Yeah, you, you do. You kind of hear about that, you know, people who've served their tours and and uh, come home to be a victim of homicide, mm-hmm. carjacking, whatever. Well, um, the woman who was attacked had the trail name Took, as was said, but that Took, uh, T-U-Q-U-E, was for her knit cap that she always wore, which is a Canadian term for a knit cap. And it's the same thing what like you would call in the South is a toboggan when I was, I, I never understood why we called them toboggans in the South, but we did. Uh, and in the Intermountain West, uh, people, you know, refer to those as a, a beanie. Um, so anyway, winter hat trivia yeah. for you. Uh, but Took is from Nova Scotia, Canada, and she's very athletic and she's a cycling ath- enthusiast and a big kayaker and a power lifter. Oh. So, um, as I said before, you know, to have that ability to lay still when you know you're out of breath and hold your breath. So I'm sure her fitness was a huge uh, part of surviving that attack. And so For besides, sure. yeah, and besides being an athlete, she was also very well educated. And at the end of 2018, four months before she left for the Appalachian Trail, she completed her master's. And I think it was something in the environmental field or something like that. And um So the injuries that Took sustained were more than 40 lacerations held together by 51 staples. Doctors glued her neck and one finger shut, sewed layers of sutures into her face. And no, like you said before, no vital organs were hit, no arteries were hit. And she didn't even require any surgery, which is hard to imagine. But she, she did have to have months of rehabilitation. And then she had to go back in the hospital because she had one wound on her leg that had become infected and badly abscessed. So ultimately, these crimes that were committed were within the special maritime and territorial jurisdiction of the United States. So Jordan was charged federally. And the court case went on for months with Jordan not being deemed competent to stand trial, kind of similar to um, some of his arrests before, but where they found him uh, competent. Anyway, he was ordered to be detained for psychological or psychiatric examination to determine whether he suffered from mental disease or defect that would make him unable to understand the charges he faces or help the attorneys in his defense. And following this examination, Jordan was admitted to the mental health unit of FMC hyphen Butner, B-U-T-N-E-R. I don't know where that is. Uh, uh, And that was on October 2019. They didn't say what city or town that was. But on April 22nd, 2021, a federal judge accepted a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity from Jordan. Both the prosecution and defense reached an agreement for the plea after a sanity evaluation found that he suffered from schizoaffective disorder and concluded, that's probably the first time he was really diagnosed, but schizoaffective disorder and concluded that he was unable, this quote, unable to appreciate the wrongfulness of his acts. And so here's the actual plea. So uh, the United States of America versus James Lewis Jordan plea agreement. And this is typed up in like first person as though he actually wrote this or dictated this or something. So it says, my counsel and I have entered into a plea agreement with the United States of America by counsel. 
I will admit to the conduct charged and rely on the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity to counts one, two, three, four, and five of the indictment. Count one charges me with willfully, deliberately, maliciously, and with premeditation and malice of forethought, unlawfully killing Ronald Sanchez in violation of Title 18 U.S. Code Section 7 and 1111. Count two charges me with attempted murder of victim KM, using initial initials here, in violation of Title 18 U.S.C. Section 7 and 1113. Count three charges me with assaulting victim KM with intent to commit murder by stabbing her multiple times with a knife in violation of Title 18 U.S.C. Section 7 and 113A1. And then counts four and five refer to the other surviving victims that Jordan chased down the trail attempting to assault with a deadly weapon. Okay, and this is signed uh, April 13th, 2021. So, Jordan was committed to a psychiatric institution and, quote, will not be released until a court finds by clear and convincing evidence that his release would not create a substantial risk of injury to anyone else, end quote. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I have concerns about that. But there were several victims here. Not only was Sanchez the ultimate victim of homicide, but now his wife and children were now the legal representative victims who are entitled to all the same rights and services as any of the other victims. And how tragic this was for his family. So some some of their rights, so these are federal victims' rights. Um, that included the right to financial remedies like crime victims' compensation, which, among other things, would pay for the costs of the funeral and burial expenses. And Took had uh, a mounting amount of medical costs. But since she was from Canada, I don't know if she had much out-of-pocket costs on the medical thing, but anything associated with her attack could have been reimbursed if she had incurred any out-of-pocket Costs and that would also include mental health counseling. I mean, she's probably would have PTSD for a really long time on that yeah. trauma that happened. And then the other two hikers that fled down the trail and es- they escaped physical harm from Jordan, but they were also victims of a violent crime. Right. So yeah, so those three surviving victims were entitled to give their impact statements at sentencing, is how it usually works. But since there was no trial. Uh, they were able to provide those at the plea and sentencing hearing, not a trial, but just at the plea and then the sentencing hearing. So Took wrote that she had suffered lasting physical and phys- lasting physical and psychological wounds from the attack and called Jordan a murderer. And quote, she says, it is anguishing to have him labeled not guilty in any fashion, though I accept the legal ramifications of those words are very different from the effect that they have on me. If he is truly unable to recognize that his actions have deeply harmed people, if he's truly unable to recognize that he ended a good man's life, if he truly must not be held responsible for his actions, then I beg you, to please use what power you have to still keep that man under lock and key. Keep him from harming anyone else. And so the sister of Ronald Sanchez wrote, quote, What gets me the most is wondering how my sweet brother took his last breath. I can't imagine being stabbed multiple times and then left there in the dark 
cold wilderness to bleed to death? Mm. Was he in pain? What was he thinking looking up to the sky, stars, and moon? He had so much life to live and adventures to fulfill. He won't get to see his kids graduate this year. Um, A person named David Ruff from a publication called Hike It Forward wrote in a February 2020 article that when Took realized she wouldn't complete the Appalachian Trail in 2019, she made another promise, this time to climb Mount Katahdin in Maine, the trail's northern finish line. Mm -hmm. So in the hospital in May, Took promised her friend, who was trail named Black Widow, hmm, wonder how she got that name, Um, (laughs) (laughs) who she... That might be another podcast. Um, right. who, who she had met after a week on the trail and hiked with so much of the next 400 miles. She promised her that she would meet her in Maine when Black Widow had completed the trail. On September 10th, four months after the terrifying attack in Virginia, she successfully climbed to the summit. Quote, we went up Katahdin together. I started the trail and I finished the trail. I just skipped a big part in the middle. Good for her. Yeah, so kind of an intense story. Uh, yeah, I can't, you know, I can't imagine. We've all been camping and been scared, sometimes on purpose by our friends. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> <laughs> this story right here is why I don't like to camp anywhere. You would be near other people. Um, that part about sleeping in a shelter or, or camping in areas where there are other strange people camping in tents or whatever, that vulnerability of going to sleep, this yeah. is probably why I don't, I don't sleep in general. But uh, I, yeah, I would have a hard time with that. And I'm okay with not doing a through hike and staying in shelters with strangers. I'm okay with not doing that. But I have so much respect for anybody that challenges themselves and completes a through hike, whether it's Appalachian Trail or Continental Divide Trail or the Pacific Crest Trail. I mean, that takes a lot of stamina and a lot of fortitude to uh, complete that. So congratulations to all of you listening who may have already done that. Well, thank you, Patty, for being such an awesome Great co-host. <laughs> I, I hope you'll welcome. do this again with me. <laughs> okay, we'll have to think of one of our stories yeah, from Yellowstone. Yeah, right, yeah. right. Well, well that's great. And that's all we have to discuss for this case. So, should we say happy trails? I usually try to end with happy trails, but I don't know. It seems kind of off-putting for this after this. How about uh, case? Safe trails. Safe trails. Uh, and definitely watch out for the company you keep. 